So, Mother's Day. There's an expression I use. I use it in a lot of different contexts, so I'll use it today. Those who've been mothers for a long time can probably relate to this. With great love comes great pain. With great love comes great pain. I want to talk about my mom for a minute. My mom passed away 20 years ago in January. So she died at 70 years old after multiple strokes for about a decade. And um, my mother had seven children in 11 years. And she loved greatly. Now, it's an interesting thing. There was great pain in that. My mother raised children that we grew up, you know, it became teenagers in the late 60s and early 70s. And so if you're from that generation, you know what that, what that presented to us as young people. And my family, my brothers and sisters, imbibed greatly in all of it, which brought a lot of pain to my parents. I remember my mother, I was the fifth of the seven. I remember hearing her cry at night after I'd gone to bed because she was so saddened over my older brothers and sisters' choices. And I said, I never want to make my mom cry. But my mom loved us deeply, I mean deeply. The, um, so, so for me, I had this example of a lady who, in spite of, of being overwhelmed with seven children and the times, who gave her life to us. And she's an incredible example to me. I'm married to a lady, Teresa, who told me not to talk about her today, but too late. <laughs> um, who has done the same for her children and my children. We're a blended family. You know, a blended family of eight kids. Our 10th grandchild will be born this week. Um, of our eight kids, we have birth kids, adopted kids. Um, it's just an incredible life to have children, but it comes with joy and struggles. So, but we know the struggles and the pain ultimately is worth the joy. I'm not gonna take a survey in here, but I'll assume that's true. <laughs> so, as you guys know, or you don't know, but usually at Easter time, we take pictures of families. Natalie does that for us. And so we, I asked her, Natalie, would you send us some of the photos of families, specifically mothers and children, so we can show them to you, people you know in this church, that um, you see the joy in these pictures of families coming together and the love that is in them. And you know these people. So I want to hear some oohs and ahs when you see the people on the screen here. Okay, so go ahead and play that slideshow, Lee. Yes. 
So, we're going to continue the series on um, the biblical view of a family. And today we're going to talk about marriage. And specifically, we're going to talk about the covenant of marriage. And, and in light of, of the fact that, that in our a covenant of marriage, the two become one. We talked about this a lot. I want to review last week. Last week, we talked about Genesis chapter 2. I want to read 21 to 25 to remind me what we did last week. Let's pray first. Father, guide us in your word today. Teach us about your heart for family, why you created families, why you created marriage. And um, encourage us, convict us, whatever, Father, we need to step into that place as your image bearers to live the life you've designed us to live. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we thanks. Amen. Genesis 2.21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What did I say the summary of that was last week? (laughs) Adam, at last, someone like me. Therefore, here's our key verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So we focused in on that, and, and I had Elena create these bubbles for me, if you remember. These are, these are bubbles that God had designed husband and wife to become one. And we're going to learn next week, as we look at Ephesians 5, that this oneness in marriage, a husband and wife becoming one, reflects Christ's love for his church. It's the only other relationship in Scripture where two become one is God and his people. So that is the core relationship God created. At the beginning of creation, he designed marriage. And then then it says that the the husband will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, showing you that the husband and wife relationship is more important than the parent-child relationship. But then in the middle bubble, you know, you're, you're, you live your life as a married person. You have your parents and extended family, brothers and sisters, but then come your own children. And I believe that those, it's another sacred bubble. And, and the larger family unit is very sacred to God. Then the parent-child relationship and the husband-wife relationship is core. I firmly believe, and we're going to talk more today about today, the husband-wife is the core to a good family and to a good society. But have we, here's my, here's my question to us, have we, we, I, I put me here, made our children more important than our spouses? So you got to think about this. Today I'm going to do a lot that is, a lot that is, um, some is bi- directly biblical and some is some inferences I draw from the Bible you may agree or disagree with. And it's okay with me as long as you're putting your mind and using the mind God gave you. So let's look at my first point, the crisis in marriage. Talk about the crisis in marriage. And I've got this phrase, I'm in love. We'll come back to why that is bringing crisis. So 40% of marriages today will fail. 40% of marriages today fail. 40% plus. I was always told it was 50%. So I did some research, and it's not 50. It's 40 plus. Um, and that, that's not, I'm not making that humor out of that. It's better than 50. 
40% of Americans are single. We'll have a whole sermon on singleness in the months ahead. Um, so, so often, marriages start with incredible exuberance and commitment, but fail in a divorce. And um, as you know, if, if you're a visitor today, you may not know this, but if you come to this church, you know that I'm divorced and remarried. So, so I, I understand how these things happen. But I want to look at the phrase, I'm in love, which, by the way, is a beautiful feeling, is it not? So not so much to you, huh? <laughs> That's a beautiful feeling, is it not? I really need that exuberance because, because the idea of being in love is amazing. And I believe it's a gift from God. But, but on, on the flip side of that is then we design our commitments in our relationship to that emotion of being in love. Then what happens when that wanes a bit? So it's a powerful emotion. and I, I don't want to make it bad. It is not bad. When I met Teresa... I was, you know, I was pretty low after my divorce. And I met Teresa. And, and Teresa's very high touch. I'm very high touch. And so when I got my eyes on Teresa and absolutely knew she was the one, I knew it. <laughs> um, I, even to, I think I told you that. I told her, I'm going to pursue you to marry you. Like two weeks after I met her. And that freaked her out. But... <laughs> But I remember the first few times she touched me. It, was not a, it wasn't a relationship touch. It was just a, a casual touch. It was a hug, one of them. And, and that touch sent, sent energy through my body and my mind that it, I've never been addicted to crack, but I bet it was just like that, that I got to have more and more of this stuff. Um, it was unbelievable. But in the end... Here's, here's where I'm drawing some inferences as I understand this. So you guys have to think about it. I would suggest to you that emotion of I'm in love is really self-interest. I'm not saying selfishness. I'm not saying selfishness. I'm saying self-interest. I wanted more and more of that feeling of that idea of in love because all of a sudden here's this lady that loves me and I want more of that. So, self-interest, what happens when that emotion of in love fades? Then all of a sudden is that honeymoon stage, that, 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 that beautiful stage of, of the dream stage gives way to some disillusionment, gives way to discouragement. What would my life be like if? I was single. What would my life be like if I was that person over there? I was with her or him. And that stuff causes you to yearn for that emotion of in love. And it's during that point that adultery happens and divorce happens. Because you're seeking for that emotion again. I was in India 16 years ago for a mission trip. Three weeks we were there, primarily with orphanages, and we did a pastor's conference. And the pastor that brought us over, an amazing man, he said, Tony, love marriages don't work. America's proof. Arranged marriages work. 
India is proof. So you single people out there, how many of you will allow your parents to pick your spouse? In the Indian culture, you don't, usually don't get a choice. It depends on the family. Some of them don't even meet their future spouse until the week before. It was arranged years before, but they don't meet them until the year before or the week before. So divorce rates way lower in India than it is in America. That's not the world I, I live in. It's not how my mind works, nor do I want to. But I think we need to rethink this idea of, be, of putting all of our weight in our marriages on in love. Because why don't, when you fall out of love with your children, when you don't have that emotion of, oh, I'm just no longer really like you anymore, <laughs> do you abandon them? Why? A deep commitment. A deep commitment. And that is what I want to talk about in marriage. The deep commitment we have to our children, we need to have that from the get-go, from day one in our marriages. So, the solution to the dilemma, the crisis in marriage, is a covenantal love. A covenantal love. So what is a covenant? The Bible is filled with covenants. Most of the time it's described between God and us. But there are dozens of times covenants are between people. And marriage is one of them. The Bible calls marriage a covenant. And here's a definition for a covenant. This isn't mine. I took this from different sources as I was studying this week. A definition of a covenant is a solemn commitment expressed with vows before God and illustrated by a sign. Okay, we could apply this to all the different covenants God made. But in marriage, a solemn commitment, solemn as the opposite of flippant, Carefree, no, this is something deeply thought about before you enter into it. Express with vows before God. When I do weddings, I'll do weddings for, for Christians or non-Christians. I will not do a wedding for a Christian to a non-Christian. And it's not, it's not because non-Christians um, aren't good people. It's just that there's something higher than our marriage. That's our love for Jesus. And often when a Christian marries a non-Christian, that Christian can't really love Jesus to the extent they're supposed to because of the, the, the fact that their, their one partner is, doesn't follow Jesus. And that's, if there's an issue, let's do it premarital counseling. Where was I going? Oh, I'll tell people this, that um, I'll do your wedding. I have two requirements. One requirement is I'm gonna talk about God as the author of marriage, and two, you're going to make vows to one another for a lifetime. Your vows must be said till death do us part, these vows. A solemn commitment expressed with vows before God and illustrated by a sign. Here's the sign of marriage in our culture. The ring. So when you see a ring on someone's finger, what is it you presume? They're married. Which means... Unavailable, unavailable, uh, off the market, yes. The lady says unavailable, the man says off the market. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so this is a covenant. 
In, in, in covenants, God has conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. God has made a covenant with us. In the new covenant, it's unconditional. He fulfills the conditions to save us. We don't present something. I'm worth saving, God. But some covenants are conditional. Marriage is a conditional covenant. You said vows. Are you going to keep them? That's the condition. So let me read you a few passages from the Old Testament where it talks about marriage being a covenant. And these are very contextualized in the life of Israel. From Malachi chapter 2, God is, is, is talking to Judah, the country of Judah, which is southern Israel, and the line of David. And, and they've really been, been walking away from the Lord. And evidently, divorces were happening left and right. So here's how God addresses that. So I'm dropping in at verse 13. And this second thing you do. So there was a first thing that, that Malachi is writing to Israel, how they have failed God. The second, and the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because by no, he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. So, so there's always this thing with religious people. I live my life the way I want, but then I'll go to church and make the offering, and God should accept it. So that's what Israel was doing. And God wasn't accepting it anymore. But you say, why doesn't he accept it? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. Did you catch that? The Lord was witness at your marriage ceremony. Between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, an image back to the two become one, and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? God made them one in that covenant with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Remember the commission we talked about a minute ago? He gave to Adam and Eve. They become one. They are to multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over the earth as God's vice regents. So this marriage between a man and a woman Keeping the covenant has a very important consequence or a result. Godly children. It's very important to God's plan. I think it's very important for our culture. So here's Malachi. So guard yourselves in your spirit, in your heart, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. What does it say guard yourself? Twice. What does that mean, guard yourself? What's that, Joe? Okay, that's right. She always quotes this verse at you. Guard your spirit, guard your heart. That, that's very practical. That we need to guard ourselves from, we have an enemy, do we not? If marriage is this important to God, what's the enemy's goal? To mess with it, totally destroy it. And so we need to guard ourselves because everyone in this room, everyone in this room is susceptible to turning selfish, living their own life and abandoning their vows. Everyone is capable. And if we don't take our vows serious 
and the commitment we made there. Remember what this is for, to remind us of those vows, and guard our hearts. The evil one's going to put things in front of us. So, guard yourselves and your spirits and do not be faithless. Let's look at one more. This one is Ezekiel 16. This is God illustrating his covenant with Israel by making him the husband and Israel his wife. Right? So the, the Malachi was the man was unfaithful. Now we're going to see the illustration of the lady being unfaithful. But this is what God does with marriage. He takes marriage and uses it as an illustration of the covenant he made with Israel. So that idolatry is seen as adultery. Or rather, adultery is seen as idolatry. So let me read it to you. So this is um, God speaking through Ezekiel. When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood. So this is God seeing Israel as a youth, as a young lady. I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, and behold, saw you, behold, you were of the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and enter into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. So God is describing here the cultural norm that he set up that a man and woman make a covenant to each other with vows, and God made that with Israel. The passage goes on to talk about how I, I cleaned you up, I, I, I gave you clothes, and there's children in the room. And you exposed yourself to other gods. It's a little more vivid what he says. That you broke the covenant we made. So, do you get the picture of a covenant? This is somber stuff. I suggest to you that for us to have success in marriage, I would never say to you, you know what, just make a covenant, it doesn't matter if you're in love or not. I so value that emotion of being in love. But that emotion of being in love can't be the foundation of our marriages. It, it is like the frosting. But the cake is the covenant and the vows I make to Teresa, and the vows she made to me. And in God's graciousness and mercy, he's allowed us to have this emotional life that can bring great, great joy or great pain. So, what does covenantal love look like? Covenantal love is a decision. It's a commitment. See, I, I don't make a decision to be so emotionally in love with Teresa. That came upon me. Can you relate? Thank you. That comes upon you. And in that, you can't imagine not being with this person. So you enter into a covenant. The covenant needs to be at the heart of marriage. That decision, that commitment is categorically different than being in love but it doesn't have to exclude it. So let's look at four passages of scripture that one specifically talks about marriage. The other talks about general relationships. 
All Christians should live these. I, I should live these verses, except for the first one, live these verses with you every day, but especially with my wife and my wife with me. So the first one is Ephesians 5.25, and we'll come back to this next week, so I just want to drop in the middle of it. The command that Paul gives to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what what does it mean Christ gave himself up for the church? What does that mean? Sacrifice, be more specific. He died. Why did he die for us? Because we had this huge need we couldn't meet ourselves that required death. Our sin required death. So Christ so loved us that he gave up his life so that we could have life. Husbands, love your wife in the same way. When I'm in premarital counseling, I read this passage and um, I look at the, the groom-to-be and I'll say, do you love her? And at that moment, there's a lot of in love feeling. So what's always the answer? Oh yeah, butterflies. Um, and I said, would you die for her? You bet I would. Every time, I've done a couple hundred weddings, every time, you bet I would, except one. I asked the guy, would you die for her? He goes, probably. <laughs> and I wanted to say, run, young lady, run. I didn't. To my knowledge, they're doing great. Then I say to him, I'd suggest to you, dying for your spouse is the easy part. Will you live for her? Will you live for her? Because I believe that's what Jesus does for us today. He exists for us. So that's a foundation. Husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church. There's a covenantal love that Jesus gave up his life to make us his own. And now every day is at the right hand of God interceding for you and me. He's alive for you and me every day. Now let's look at some passages that, 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 that extend from this. So Jesus loves you by how? Dying for you. Listen to what he says in John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment to us, his followers, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's referring to how we treat each other. And marriage should be not only not not the exception, but the example that we each live our lives in a manner that I would give up my life for my spouse. Philippians chapter 2. Let's see this love of Jesus is inseparable from humility. This is a passage on Jesus humbled himself and became human. But this is how it starts. Paul gives a command to everybody. So this is to all of you, especially those who are married. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So let's stop there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If the emotion of in love is primarily self-interest, could that not be pushed so far to be selfish and conceited? That I live for that high. Then I'm using you. Paul says differently here, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The New American Standard says count others as more important than yourself. Now, 
That really goes against our modern um, self-esteem teaching. But, but don't misunderstand it. Is it saying others are more important than you? It's not saying that. What is it saying? Regard them, consider them is more important. They're not. We're all equal before God. But if I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm going to regard you as more important than me. Then my wife should be the number one person I regard as more important than me. And look what it says. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This passage applies to all relationships. Marriage is the most important relationship. And it requires an active commitment. This just doesn't happen. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't, it just happens along the way. Guard your hearts. Last one, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. We know this passage so well. We see it on posters. In fact, you know, it's funny is, is, is I'll see this on posters in, in, in people's homes who have no clue what, what the Bible even teaches, and they're fairly ignorant it even comes from the Bible because it's so popular in culture. So three, four verses. Let's walk through it slowly. Covenantal love. Love is patient and kind. Okay, think of this. What's the opposite of this? How does the opposite come? What does impatience and unkindness look like? Often is expressed in words. I, and, and this is, you know, you guys are sick of this illustration. Driving down Highway 28 in the summertime, no patience, no kindness, and if I had the power, they'd all go to hell based upon what I say in my car to them. Um, if, if you're one of them, I apologize. Just don't do U-turns on a corner. Love is patient, love is kind. <laughs> I might argue with that, Ken, but still I need to forgive. <laughs> love does not envy or boast. See, the, the opposite of envy and boast is consider them more important. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. So think about your relationships. Think about all your relationships, but specifically for marriage. It does not insist on its own way. What is proof you're not walking with the Lord in, in a moment? Because this is, this is um, anger for sure. We, in, our, in our discovery class, we were trying to define sin this last week. And sin's a bad word. It's a four-letter word, even though there's only three letters. Um, but sometimes it doesn't, sometimes people hear, oh, you're a sinner, but they just shut down. They want to hear no more. So I like to use a synonym for sin. And a synonym for sin is selfishness. At the heart of sin is not your will be done, but my will be done. That's what Adam and Eve did in the garden. But the heart of the idea of someone who is not insist upon his own way is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. 
Not my will be done, Father, but your will be done. So we need to take that into marriage. That I wake up in the morning and I think, boy, this is what I want today. This is my goal for the day. But first, Teresa, babe, what's on your heart today? What can I do for you today? What do you need from me today? And I set aside my way. Often when you don't get your way, you become irritable and resentful. Love doesn't do that. Verse 6. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. There's something about human nature that when you fail, outwardly I grieve. Inwardly I go, yes, I'm better than they are. Because I didn't fail like they did. Why do we do that? Why do we, definitely the flesh, why, why, why do we rejoice when someone fails because it makes me look better? But I fail all the time too. And I'd be horrified if I knew you were rejoicing over that. Definitely the flesh. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Then we have this summary now. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, one time, love bears all things. Bears all things is the idea of carrying it. Carrying it. One guy described this, a love that throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. Think about that, husbands and wives. When your love for your spouse, you bear all things. A love that throws a cloak of silence over what is displeasing in another person. Believes all things. Assumes the best. That's not normal. Often you do something wrong, I'm going to the worst place. You did that because we assume the best about people. Hopes all things. See, hope empowers your commitment. When hope runs out on your marriage, what happens to your commitment? It disintegrates big time. Because if there's no hope, then I need to go find where I'm hopeful. Hope, love hopes all things, endures all things. Where bears all things is carrying it, endures all things is the idea of, of this pressure. I'll endure the pressure of this relationship because that's what love does. Covenantal love does that. The emotion of being in love says, see you later. I'm going to go find some more of that somewhere else. And then verse 8, love never ends. You see, in love can end, and it does. So remember the butterflies? Remember the butterflies you had when you met the one you love? Hello? Okay. Did you have them? I can remember telling a marriage counselor, when he said those will go away, I said, I'm sorry yours went away. Mine will never go away. You can't endure that life. You can't endure that emotion. In the, 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 the stomach you can't eat anymore because you're so in love. That wanes. That goes away. But covenantal love does not end. 
It's based upon a commitment, a solemn commitment, sealed with vows before God, and a constant reminder of what I promised to my wife. So there's some practical things about the hierarchy of love. The hierarchy of covenant love to in love. In love is very important. I suggest to you not to get married if you're not in love. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I, I, I value it greatly. But it's not the foundation of marriage. It's an emotion that comes and goes. And marriage, since in love is self-interest, marriage is greater than your personal happiness. Because how many times have we said, I'm just not happy anymore. And then the advice of many people is, and go get happy. Bail out and go get happy. But if it's based upon that emotion, it's going to happen again and again and again. Which statistically is true, by the way. God's purpose has to do with your holiness. In fam family makes you holy. It does. It really does. It's part of God's design. That we together, Teresa and I are one, and together he's taken us through life to conform us to the image of his son. It's not simply individual, it is a joint thing we do together. She's God's primary instrument in my growth to holiness. And I'm God's primary instrument in her growth to holiness. There is no one that I should have a commitment to like I do my wife. That's also very important for extended family and for society. Covenantal love is a decision to do something. It is proactive, not reactive. I have to go into it with my eyes open. When I do, I mentioned premarital counseling a lot. I love premarital counseling because you get to pop bubbles. There's always this sense of, oh, our life will be perfect. No, it ain't. No such thing. But. If we get married because we're in love, that is reactive. Covenantal love is a commitment that then overrides all the pain in life. There's something very important in our marriages. When you were in love, you pursued each other. That's what you do in your, your, your dating time is about pursuit. Because I, I'm going to pursue you relentlessly. I'm going to do nice things for you. I'm going to buy you gifts. I'm going to, whatever it is, your love language you do, you do that for the person you are in love with that you're pursuing. And then men, more so than ladies, you get married, what happens? There's this pursuit, and you're just going faster and faster pursuing. And she says, yes, I do. Boom. That's a bit of exaggeration, but it's kind of like going hunting. You're excited for the hunt. You shoot the deer. What do you do? Take it home, put it in the freezer. Till next year. <laughs> I tell people regularly. So here's what I do. So, so premarital counseling is fun. Postmarital counseling is, is, is moves energy from everybody. And so I'll ask people when they're in front of me, when they come in later and, and there's no more sense of love, I'll look at them and say, Husband, do you believe your wife is for you? Wife, do you believe your husband is for you? 
By the time they get to my office, the answer is no. You know why? Because there's no evidence of it. Because the pursuit has stopped. A covenantal love, an in-love emotion always pursues. What they have a commitment to is to continue to pursue when that emotion starts to go away. Because that pursuit tells people, I'm still deeply committed to you and I adore you. Men and ladies, this is two-way street, but since I'm a man, um, like this morning, Teresa comes downstairs and she's staying home today, Mother's Day. I said, stay home. We have kids coming over for dinner. She's cooking dinner for her Mother's Day. (laughs) It's her gift. And um, why'd I bring that up? Boy, I hate that. Oh, so I'm trying to get the house ready for our kids to come over. And, um, oops, Daryl, I lost it. There it is. Daryl helps with my iPad. Um, I lost it. I hate, I hate that. Yes, she came downstairs, but I don't have time to make my, my bad memory. Let's move on. How sad. How sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's let's, let's move on. Let's move on. I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm nervous now. Gosh. All right, so. Let's remember the two become one. Um, the bond of marriage is greater than any emotion. And I believe that when we remind ourselves of our vow, the person we the person we fell in love with, though behaviors change, attitudes change, the, I, before God, I said, I'm gonna love you till death do us part. That's a commitment and you do that. That can actually restore the emotion of in love. When I say love, the emotion goes away, it's not permanent, it comes and goes, comes and goes, that's what emotions do to us. If the deep covenantal love and that commitment is there, then the foundation is set. The bond of marriage is greater than our emotions. So, real quick, those of you who aren't married, pick well. Don't let in love be the primary thing that drives you to pick that person. Pick well, and do not skip premarital counseling. Those of you who are married, If you're married a long time, you know what I'm talking about here with the ups and downs of the emotions. Remember your vows and recommit to them as a way to honor God and that person that you fell in love with, in love with, that and you pursued, that's your calling for the rest of your life. And when you both do that, it builds a phenomenal foundation. And if it, has, if it has waned and you've done things that hurt the marriage, repent of it and confess it to each other. Apologize and say, honey, I'm so sorry for the way I've treated you. I have not kept my vows. Can we, can we start again in this commitment? If you're single today because of divorce, I, I understand where you're at. And whatever the future holds for you, 
I would say most single people, when we get to singleness, we'll talk about this. I would say most single people want to get remarried. Some don't. Um, and singleness, whether from divorce or death. Um, commit yourself to serving the Lord until God brings that person to you. Because in singleness, we can um, get very wayward, get very wayward, and, and forget who we are. I am... I, um, I really believe that. I think God rescued me by bringing me Teresa. And that's not a joke. I think I, I would have had real issues being, living the single life. Some of you have great self-control and great commitment to that, and I, you, you impress me deeply. Um, I think God knew he, he'd, he's going to fail. I've got to find someone for him. <laughs> um, so, so this is mother's I, I, I wanted today to be, to be honoring to you, and I hope, I hope you, you, you're honored that we appreciate your role in our lives as mothers. Um, but let's remember the covenant of marriage is more important than our commitment to the rest of our family. If we make, put a ton of energy into that marriage, our family will thrive, or more likely will thrive than not. But if we overdevote ourselves to family members besides our spouses, they're going to be hurt by our failed marriage. Does that make sense? So we all need to stop, talk to God about it, and ask for his mercy in our lives, forgiveness, we all need that. Reminder of who we are and the power to live up to our vows. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word today. What came from your word today, Lord, drive into our hearts. What was from my wisdom, Lord, if it's true, drive that in. If it's not, help us to forget it. But we know, Lord, that you, because you use marriage to describe your love for your people, we want to honor you and our spouses. Give us what we need, Lord, whether it's courage to live up to our vows, humility to ask forgiveness for our failures, Energy, when that motion of in love is gone, we feel like all we're doing is putting out and receiving nothing back. Lord, give us the power to continue to do what you've called us to do, no matter what's going on. To be faithful to you above all. We thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.